Left. Right. What is up? Welcome to the new episode of Sip Talk. Today we are talking about children, specifically what today's parenting is doing to children, making potentially weaker, uh, more offendable children, and uh, what that's going to look like in the future. So let me know if you agree with their points. We digress quite a bit throughout this episode, um, but I think it's something that does uh, need a little bit of attention. Are we creating a generation of weaker and less durable humans? Let me know what you think. This is Sip Talk. Grab a drink and enjoy. This is Sip Talk, episode 197. My name is Justin DiGiulio, out of my basement in New Jersey, joined by James, the Bosnator Boswell, out of South Carolina. James is a philosopher, a professional bartender. He gets, what, what are the other things you do? Accountant, referee. Oh, referee, professional. Yeah, uh, re- referee. Retire, retired referee, semi-retired professional referee. Heading towards fully retired. I've got a <laughs> soccer game on Sunday, and like, I in past years I've done like twenty to thirty college soccer games, and probably between like forty to sixty other games. Like, I've given myself an availability of like eight days in the next three months. That's because you're a busy guy, dude. You got a lot of official professional level titles. I think, which I think is is great, and I feel bad leaving them out. I, I oh, I don't, I don't care about any of that. Well, you know, you must secretly care about your uh, philosopher title. Uh, And it's a bachelor's degree. (laughs) That's a pretty big one, too. Um. If so I had, like, a you, master's or, like, a doctorate or something in it, maybe I'd care, but I probably wouldn't. Well, I'm not big on titles your, or anything like that. It would be like your that. philosophy of, of the – yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Because like, there's plenty of people out there that are complete morons that have titles. So I just look at titles as, like, a symbol of I put time into this. But that doesn't mean that you're very smart. I don't not. I mean, I think you and philosophy, I don't think you need a, a title. You and philosophy are just hanging out. Just yeah. Hanging out. You don't need a title. Uh, I want to keep it casual, man. <laughs> um, so let me ask you a question. Are you uh, you are you back off the wagon? Yeah. I thought I heard I, I thought I heard a beer. That way. Yeah. It, it, actually, tonight is a beer. Um, like. The, the not drinking thing wasn't bad except for when I was trying to go to sleep. It would make it really hard. Like, I would I would be tired, but I just could not go to sleep. Yeah, no, I, uh, that's the thing about drinking. It definitely, it definitely helps you go to sleep. But, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you can agree with me, even though it does help you go to sleep. You, you may not sleep as well. Well, I think that, that that's, that's definitely true, but it also is heavily dependent on how much alcohol you had in you. So, like, since I've gotten back on, like, drinking. Um, <laughs> Off the I, wagon, I, I drinking, yeah, yeah. I haven't had a hangover. Like, I haven't gotten to the point where I've been hungover the next day since I started drinking again. 
So like, I would say that if like you're waking up with any sort of a hangover, then that's when like the drinking affected your sleep quality. Like it definitely affects your sleep quality in any amount, but like when it really becomes noticeable is when you also have other factors going on. Well, if you look, if you have a 10 hour window to sleep, like you're probably obviously if you get blitzed, plastered, like you're fucked either way. But if you get a 10 hour window to sleep and you've had a few drinks and and maybe you sleep lousy for three and a half of those hours, you, you, you're still getting a solid six hours, which, you know, at a professional yeah. level, people can still perform. So, right. And uh, like there would there be nights where I'd be awake for like two hours, just like trying to go to sleep well that's you know i i don't drink nearly as much as i used to and i find a lot of very restless nights where i just can't sleep because you know whatever whether it's something that's on my mind which is which is a big factor um or i'm just not perfectly comfortable so look we uh the topic today we'll get right into it we we, we're missing rosh so we can't follow your comments on instagram or tiktok but we can follow your comments on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch. So if you guys want to join us on those platforms and comment, we can see you there, and we we will see. Oh, you there. all right, I've got the topic. All right, free range children. Free range are, children. Are they healthier, juicier, and more nutritious than factory farm raised children? Well, after after was it last week's episode or the week before that? We talked um, about nutrition. I think it was oh, two food. Weeks. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, free range children is like, that's not going to be 100% of the topic, but I think it, it's a weird one because you think like free range chicken. All right. Free range children. Are they also food? <laughs> I think the point that is escaping the topic that you've, <laughs> that you've titled is how coddling our children and overprotecting them and not letting them kind of have free roam is creating a weaker and more afraid and more easily offended generation. You want to talk a little bit about how we got here? Um, well, I, I In terms of choosing this, this as our topic. I mean, I, I feel like this is a long time coming. I don't feel like we're going to flush it out all in one episode. But I, are you talking about the video that I sent you? Yeah, I'm talking about the video that I... Like, the, the the Jordan Peterson takedown video that I sent you and then your response with the um, the coddling children by Professor Hype. Yeah, so well, let's should we start with Peterson? No. <laughs> because should we end with Peterson? Do you want my response to what you sent me? I, I'd I'd rather do that either off the air or in a separate episode because okay. that video was three hours long. Oh my god, it was. I, I watched everything except for maybe the last 10 minutes and I was and I was like working in the basement with the TV on down here and I was like, you know what? I got the point. Like I cannot continue to stay awake. I have no more work to do down here. It's off. I, I almost finished this thing. The point made. So we'll skip the Jordan Peterson bashing video. We'll get on to the next video. And who's this guy? Um they Professor of psychology from Chicago University, I think. University of Chicago, Professor Height, H A I D T. Um, and he gave a, an hour long speech to um, a, Col a Boulder University in Colorado about coddling children and the effect that it has psych psychologically and how we're starting to see in the data in today's college students 
a marked difference between like today's generation and kind of like our generation when we went to college 15 years ago? Was it 15? Um, yeah, close to it. A little bit more, actually. 15 well, years ago is when I graduated. So what would you say is different on a college campus today than 15 years ago? So I've actually asked my professors this. Um, on the, the times that I've gone back to, to the campus just to see who's around and talk to the professors, I like asking this question. And the last time I asked this question was a while ago. So I'm sure that even more has changed since then. But even in like the four or five years between when I graduated and when I last asked the professors, the number one thing that they talked about was a perception on the, perce uh, the professor's part that the students lacked in independence where for example a class that i took my freshman year um was very much a traditional structure of professor gets up in front of class talks about a topic for an hour we take notes we ask questions every once in a while maybe she puts a topic out there for the class to debate but it was very much like teacher led and like a little bit of student participation and then you know Here's some reading to do. Be ready for next class. There's a paper in two weeks. There's a test in three weeks. This is what the test will cover. And then you just kind of repeat that process throughout the year, right? Okay, so what's changed from there? What she told me was, the way I taught your class, I wouldn't be able to do again today. And I said, why? Your class was fine. And she says, it was for you guys. Today's kids, like the, the students that I'm getting now, can't handle that like it has to be like there's so much where i have to break them up into groups and they have to have discussions and it is so much more collaborative among the students i said i would hate that so she says so i know you would the students are incapable of comprehending the material and then doing the work uh, i mean i wouldn't go quite so far as to say they're not capable of comprehending the material but i think what she was saying is that like for whatever reason, something changed in the way that these kids were taught, where instead of just being responsible for themselves and their workload yeah, and, and, and their workload, they need to learning. they need to have kind of reaffirmation from their peers. Whereas like in my class, we didn't care about that. It, I didn't care if somebody sitting next to me in class said, oh, you seem to really get this, bro. I'm like, no, like that's what the test well, is for. So, yeah, I mean, do they even put people's grades up on the wall anymore, or is the, this that hurt people's feelings? That's never, I've never seen that happen. Like, even when I was in school, like, you didn't know what somebody else's grade was. That was protected information. Uh, I've seen grades even, up like, on the walls before. I've seen, but so. Some, in foreign countries, there, there are some countries where that's standard practice, where everybody knows where everybody else stands in terms of grades. <laughs> but in the U.S., I don't, I, I can't remember a time when you knew what someone's grade was. So, and even in high school, the only time I can remember a, like a student's grade being shared among the class was actually my own. <laughs> and why? Because uh, it was bad or good? No, it was uh, AP, no, it was, it was U.S. History with Mr. Lee, where there was like an advanced class that happened to be during a period that I couldn't go. So I was just in like, what was kind of the dumb student section 
of his history class. He took like he was teaching like three or four of them. So he had like probably two average ones, one smart one, and I was in the dumb one. And so like two weeks in, he pulls me aside. He's like, "What in the world are you doing in this class?" I said, uh, "I have to take it to graduate." He says, "Yeah, but why are you in this section?" I'm like scheduling conflicts. But anyways, towards the very end of the year, um, the the global history, you know, I had the 50 multiple choice questions that you had to take on the final, right? Well, you got to get to the point. Let's go. Oh, all right. So anyways, we took three of those. Your grade was shared. You had to take the we final. We took three of those. And <clears throat> I, took, I got the first one, and I got a 100. And he's like, only one person got a 100. It was Boswell. I was like, all right, cool. Second <laughs> one comes back, and he's like, Boswell, I think you're cheating. I said, no. He says, you got a 100 again. Who are you cheating off of, by, by the way? <laughs> yeah. looking, which way are you looking? Left, right? <laughs> yeah, if, if I was cheating in that class, I would have gotten a lower grade. <laughs> um, and then the last one comes in. It's like, Boswell, you really screwed this one up. I said, what? He says, 98. Oh, man, you fucked yourself, man. So you 149 had... out of 150. Oh, man. But yeah, like no, you don't share students' grades Look, in this, but, in this let's back up. country. Let's back up. I want to talk about what's different about college. Then and now. And here's here's is, is my understanding that college is a place of exposure. You're exposed to more information, more complex course loads, more complex ideas, more complex life situations, right? You're going to parties and you're also exposed to new people, new cultures, new uh demographic for the lack of a you know you're, you're a wider demographic so can i added one thing to you to your idea there because i agree with you about college colleges about exposure i completely agree there but i think the other major difference between college and high school uh, like exposure is one two is responsibility uh, in high know- school in high school, if you fail a test or whatever, like people are going to constantly be in, in intervening with they're, you and yeah, say they're going to reach out to you and offer help. Right. Whereas in college, like if you don't show up to a class, the professor nobody, doesn't care. Nobody gives if a you fuck. Don't, yeah. If you miss a test and you don't reach out to the professor, that's an easy thing for the professor to grade. It's a zero. And if you yeah. fail the class, the professor doesn't care. Like if you go and seek out help from the professor, they will care. But if you don't do anything, the professor could give two shits. So you are the one who is now responsible so, for in, whether so you in, succeed. Increased responsibility, increased exposure. And that's increased, not to say that the help isn't there, but the onus of who has to seek it out has changed. Before it was pushed on you. Now it's available to you if you look for it. So what, what my perspective on college is now is that the students are more in control, right? If the students are loud enough, if they cry enough, they can control what the college is doing. It's not so much about exposure. It's trying to keep them comfortable. They don't want the exposure. They don't want certain new ideas if they disagree with them. And college campuses tend to lean more liberal vast majority of them do. The vast, and, and I actually thought that was a funny statistic many years ago that the more educated people were, the more liberal they were. But, um. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I always kind of liked that stack because I was, I was definitely on the liberal side. I'm like, yeah, the people that know more, 
makes more sense. I mean, the more you learn, you more the more you realize that conservatism is a bad idea. Yeah, well, but what's happening now, I think, is that the liberal agenda and the liberal, liberal perspective is changing. Because 15 years ago, it was we have people on the streets that are homeless. We need to get them off the streets into homes. Now, it's we have people on the streets that are homeless. We need to protect them. We, they, they, he, somebody's got a grocery cart full of 400 garbage bags that are full of 400 shopping bags that are all empty. This is this person's belongings. We can't take that from them. This is a public space. They have the right to be there. Well, you know, so, so, and that's the liberal perspective on that. Has, certainly has elements of the left that have kind of gone off the deep end and made some pretty unreasonable claims. And they're the ones that tend to get a lot of the attention. I think that there are still voices on the left that are arguing for more pragmatic solutions on things, but they're getting drowned out in volume, not in terms of like volume of size, but in volume of how loud people are shouting. Yes. So, yeah. But yeah, the, the volume of, of what people are saying and doing, I think definitely has increased. And And the problem is, when you have this small group of people on a campus that are screaming very loudly, like as much as you want to ignore them because their demands are unreasonable, the, 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 the disruption that they cause forces a response because it kind of takes away from the enjoyment of all the reasonable people. Because if, if you've got, a college of let's say 20,000 students, which is a large ish university. If you have a protest of 500 people, that's a tiny portion of the overall student body. But right? 500 is a lot. Yeah. Right. But if you have 500 people that make a huge scene and are loud and disruptive and like that's going to affect more than 500 people, it could affect two or 3,000 people. And so those two or 3,000 people are going to be like, are you guys going to do anything about these 500 people that are just like like playing loud music and running around beating <laughs> drums and stuff, are yelling about like whatever today's issue is? So it, it forces a response on the, on the side of the institution, and the institution doesn't really have any good options. So, yeah. Think about that. I, I, I agree, because what are you going to do? I, you know, I, I thought this is a bit uh, adjacent to what you're saying, but back to the homeless thing. I saw this homeless guy sitting on, on the block, uh, down the block from my office, right off Fifth Ave. Nice area on Fifth Avenue. There's a really nice hotel near my office. I mean, uh, the stay, you know, for a small room is at least a grand a night, like just entry to get into the hotel. It's got a, it's got a Michelin star restaurant downstairs. Um but I saw that homeless guy sitting three or four doors down from the hotel. And I thought to myself, what would the hotel do if this guy just decided to make make home right in the entrance uh, alcove to the to the hotel? And then I thought, like, I don't I don't think they could do anything. Well, it'd be trespassing. Well, mm, I mean, if it's on the public sidewalk, is it? But then I was thinking, like, what is what is the hotel going to do? And again, this is a bit adjacent to the scenario you just gave. It just popped in my head because it was relevant to the homeless conversation. But I was thinking, if I had a hotel like that, what if you just put a sprinkler system in the awning? And then you just, you know, whenever nobody was there, you just turned it on and wet the sidewalk. So 
the sidewalk was kind of a miserable place to set up shop. And if this, you know, homeless person, you'd have guest complaints. Well, no, the sidewalk was just wet. It's not no, slippery. I get that, but a lot of people are going to be wearing shoes based on the weather. So if they look out the window and see that it's dry and they're wearing shoes that can be damaged in water and then they have to walk through a whole bunch of puddles when they first leave your hotel. Well, I mean, it, it, not puddles. It's a sidewalk. But still, $2,500 pair of shoes, uh, you know, I, I'd be pissed as well. Either way, it's just, it just back to being backed into the corner. What are you going to do? So the college has got these 500 kids. They're obnoxious. They're making noise. They won't. They won't shut up. They won't stop. They're coming in different waves. This seemingly could go on for weeks, if not months. What's the college going to do? And then you have people demanding that it, it gets stopped. Yeah, because probably the most of the student body either doesn't care or is annoyed by just the disruption. And so, like, if you're the administration, you're going to try and figure out. How can I give in to these demands in the easiest way possible for me? And if they're demanding something, some, like there was one where I, I think it was Wesleyan College, or I don't know, that um, they had a hump day celebration. Okay. What day of the week is hump day? Wednesday. Yeah. Why is it called hump day? Middle of the week, like a camel's humps. But there was a group of students that thought that the, the name Hump Day was offensive. So guess mm. what happened to the event? But that's, so that's the point is where are we drawing the line? Who's the decider as to whether or not something's offensive? And why can't some things maybe be offensive? Well, that's kind of where we ended our – when we were going over this video of – Height, um, Professor Height's speech about college students becoming less and less resilient and like the creation of safe spaces engendering this idea that if something is troubling or offensive to you, there's a place you can go to escape it without consequence and how that doesn't teach you how to actually deal with any adversity. And the, I, I put... Can you read? Can you read the sentence, the the quote that you have on here, the first line that you have? Because I actually read it about five six minutes ago. I don't know if you saw me kind of crack up in the background, but the the, um, first... the, the practically every class. Yeah, yeah. Just read All that. Right. So this is from the Stanford Daily, written in 2015 by a student, and the title of it is "In Defense of Safe Spaces." And this is a quote that I took from from the Stanford Daily. From, yeah. So I think that's a student newspaper. But anyways, here's the quote. Quote, practically every class I have taken at Stanford has failed to acknowledge the existence of transgender or non-binary people. Unquote. Okay. And you can see my commentary below there of welcome to Calculus 101. In this course, we're going to be covering differential equations. Um, it's important to note that Gay, gay, bisexual, lesbian, transgender, and non-binary people exist. We hope that this will be especially useful in your in your pursuit of how to derive, how to how to find a derivative of a function. Like, but James, you missed you missed slavery slavery entirely on this. It's really offensive to me. You know, um, hundreds of thousands of people were brought over here for the slave trade that endure many many a decade. 
uh, of torture and hard work and right. Know, this is so, like when I read that, I was that just out. like, I don't understand. Like, if you're, t- I could understand in classes where that's relevant, it should be mentioned, but the vast majority of them, it isn't. <laughs> which yeah, which is why practically every class you've taken at Stanford has not acknowledged things that are not relevant to that class. Yeah, we're we're studying uh, organic chemistry today, so we're going to learn about carbon carbon hydrogen bonds, but also gay and bisexual people and transgender people, because they also have carbon hydrogen bonds in their body. But that's why you can't show up to math class and just and derive the value of the math class and and then leave. Yeah, because and actually, when I was taking classes at College of Charleston like two years ago, I was, like the last class I took there was finance, mm-hmm. so just corporate finance stuff, right? And there were in the syllabus there was all this stuff that like CFC mandated to like all professors include in in the syllabus about like the co- the college's goal and like a mission statement and stuff and it was all about like learning to think like critically and like just kind of a whole bunch of lefty kind of self self improvement stuff which in some classes would be relevant like yo this is corporate finance like you just need to learn how to do some equations and learn like the formulas that are used when finding out how much something's going to cost. We don't need the mission statement of the university. <laughs> no, no, no. I just need to know, like, what's the curriculum and have somebody talk to me about time value of money. But I think we need to acknowledge the existence of transgender and non-binary people in this course. Uh, yeah, it's... so. But that's, but that's the issue that we're running into. Can we Can we talk about safe spaces? Because I actually was not familiar with really the con i don't know i still don't really know what it is is it it's just not like a, a well-defined concept is it like a prayer room at the airport where you could be praying to a jewish god praying to a hindu god praying to a christian god it's just a safe so i think it can pray. take that form i don't think it's a, i don't think that's the exclusive way it manifests but uh, i i think that that's one way and like in the video, the guy talks about how there were some, or maybe it was you. I don't remember where I saw this about how there were some safe spaces that were like for minorities only. So, like if you're white, you're not allowed into this safe space. Which, but, but so that's the thing is like grouping the minorities. You know, like let me ask you a question: the LBGTQ, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, group. I'm very surprised up until this point, we haven't heard much pushback from this group where they are less accepting of the additional and additional and additional members that they may not agree with. You know, if you're, if you're gay or lesbian, but you disagree with a 12 year old having their dick chopped off, which I think is a lot of people are probably against 12 year olds having their dick chopped off. um, Well, that's not happening. Well, it's happening, just not really. No, what, what's happening I mean, is hormone treatment. Hormone therapy, yeah. So the, and there's a big difference because if you have like genital reassignment surgery, that's very hard to reverse. Whereas if you have like hormone replacement therapy, that's something that can be reversed. So like the, you're not making a permanent decision, but you are making a decision that might make someone's life easier if 
they choose to go down well, a path later on in life. And if they, if it turns out that at 12 or 13, they had the completely wrong idea, then they can have hormones like given back to them later on in life that will kind of undo what they missed. So uh, I don't know exactly about the science of that. Cause puberty... neither do I, but it, it's something where like if the majority of the medical community says it's okay to do hormone treatment, for prepubescent kids, if the majority of doctors are okay with it, then they know more than I do. I don't think the majority of doctors are pro-hormone therapy for people under 18. I think there's probably a, a loud minority who, who are purporting the science on it. But Well, let's get the data on this before we just conjecture. Yeah, fair enough. I think you know it's, it's difficult to even make an argument from either either perspective. Um, but what I'm because saying there is are, there, there, there are data out there. And for us, yeah, it's like, um, uh, yeah, there's got to be. I'm not interested in looking it up. I'm not really interested in, in continuing down that line of conversation either. No, but like if we both have an opinion and neither of us have support. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that's the night. So I was telling I was explaining to somebody earlier tonight about what this podcast is about. And I think at the at the at the core root of the podcast, it's a platform for you and I to have a somewhat educated, but not always, conversation where it allows us to articulate our beliefs and opinions and and sound them out in an open space where it's safe because it's you and I, and it's also safe because we don't give a fuck if somebody disagrees with us, right? But it's nice to have a platform where we can articulate these points and and, and potentially even change our minds. Well, and I also think that it's, and I, I want it to be a place where we can kind of model what a good debate looks like. Where, but look, what just happened? We just both gave up on our on our opinions, or you know, because we didn't have any data. And I think that's a smart way to have a conversation. In a in a different setting, we could do a little more research. Except nobody wants to sit here and watch us for seven minutes while we just Google, right? Right. Uh, but but I think re- re- respectably. And respectfully, on both of our parts, we just gave up our our perspective because we had no no backing to it, and we were both cool with that. Right? It's like it, it, if I'm going to try and make a point about something, I want to have support for it. And even if it's not support from the opposing side, you need to have something else I, in your corner. Yeah, I need to have something because, like, and this is why, like, I hate getting drawn into to debates about religion. Why is that? You don't have anything in your in your corner. There, there's no. It, it, all claims in religion are fundamentally unsupportable, but all criticisms of religion are also unsupportable. Well, because you're talking uh, about something that can't be supported. Well, if you look at fossil records and argue evolution, and then if you look at genesis and argue creationist theory well uh, here's the answer and this is like you say okay the earth was created four thousand or six thousand years ago and you say well we've got fossil records that go back millions of years and they say yeah but they were created to look millions of years old see how easy it is yeah i know i know so, I, I, I was actually i was afraid you were gonna i was, I was actually afraid you're gonna play that card well, it, it devolves into one of my favorite philosophical um, thought experiments. Have you heard of Last Thursdayism? Oh uh, yes. Um, 
Bertrand Russell came up with this one. And it's the idea that everything in the universe was created last Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. Y- you were created last Thursday. All of your memories, all your experiences and everything, all that was created last Thursday. Yeah. How yeah. can you prove that last Wednesday happened? But that, but that throws you right back into uh, simulation theory. Like they, right. they run parallel. So Right. So I, I forget the technical term for it, but there's a, there's a philosophical term for a type of argument that can't be refuted, but also can't be supported, where you're basically just making a claim. But it's not something that you can falsify. Can we... Uh... So we've established this is a safe space. <laughs> Yet <laughs> uh, we can well, still attack it. But we can but so the nice thing about the safe space, it's not like the new safe spaces. We can attack the shit out of each other. We can argue. And people can excuse himself. Your brother was on here for a while. He didn't like the you know, we probably had a very poor argument from both sides of it i was being a bit of a bully but i also completely did not agree with any of his logic and we couldn't come to terms and then he left but for the most part you and i i think for the entire part you and i are able to have conversations and disagreements but it's a safe space where we encourage challenging safe space when we talk about colleges and workplaces there's no challenging i don't know how they work I don't either, because great. What I think about <laughs> somebody tell us how a safe space well, works. Yeah, like because think about like if you were in high school or whatever, there would be things that you would talk about in school, and then there would be things that you would talk about not in school. Or think about a time that you've had a job, where when you're in the office, you might talk about the job one way. And then you go out for drinks with just one of your coworkers and you know that the conversation is between you and him and you trust him. You're going to say different things about the job, right? Yeah. So one of those is a, they're they're both safe spaces. If you think about it, because like if you're in an office, like nothing's going to happen to you, you're, you're fine. And, but out of the office, but when you're out of the office and you're at a bar talking with your coworker and you're complaining about the decisions that your boss made about something, like you're opening up in a way that you wouldn't in the office. But so I think the weird part about now, though, I think that what you're saying holds up until about three, four years ago. Now, that colleague might say outside of the workplace, you made them, them uncomfortable. Therefore, you need to be fired because now when they well, see you in the workplace, they are uncomfortable. What I'm saying is that if you're if if you're choosing to have this kind of a conversation with a colleague outside of the office, it needs to be somebody that you trust. But again, you don't. That's the thing. That's my point. Up until about three or four years ago, you your perception of trust was honored by the other side. But now, you don't know how volatile that other person's emotions may be. I mean, you gotta you have to trust your own ability to read people, man. Because like. When I was working in the accounting office, I had those conversations with coworkers all the time, and it would be complaining about this or that. But like, it wouldn't really be done in the office. It would be done like we'd have drinks after work or something. I had a conversation by text with an agent I work with, and then in person again today about sexual harassment in the workplace. 
And what we came down to was these are the rules. Um, there is an exception to the rule. It may be broken. However, if one of the parties is uncomfortable with it, it needs to be reported. Right? Like you can break you can break the rule if both parties are okay with that, basically. Wow, I, I, I really got to the conversation very fast. But what I was being told is somebody, you know, uh, asked this other person out for lunch and continued to ask, continued to ask. And I said, well, you know, did you ask them to stop? And the answer was yes. I said, okay, well, then they've broken the rule. You need to talk to somebody else. You need to you need to mm -hmm. report this and have, have them spoken with. However, and you know, I'm telling you those are the rules. You, I'm, not, I'm actually the second person to tell you that if some, someone asks you out and you say no, that should be the last time that they ask you out. Um, but if they ask you out again, they might be breaking that rule, but it's on you to report them. I would say that the limit to the number of times you can ask somebody out is one and a half. The half part is the difficult part to codify. When in doubt, it's one. But that's but that's why it becomes tough. Speaking of high school, sorry again to, to kind of take an adjacent direction here. I have. I don't know if you can see this. It's kind of wired up, so I can't move it too far. Do you remember this thing? Mm -hmm. So this is a video camera my family got back in 1996, and I have roughly 50 of these mini cassettes. That thing was probably like 2,500 bucks in 20, in 1996. I, I I think it was. I don't, I remember it not being cheap. And there's actually there's. So what I've been doing is I I bought this device that you plug the RCA cables into, and then it it, it changes that to USB, and brings it to your computer. It comes with the software where you can screen and sound record. That's cool. Uh, yeah. So and and I I bought it's a probably I, still crap resolution. I mean the 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 videotape itself is pretty shit resolution. It's probably three sixty p. But there's actually a, a conversation where my mom is, somebody asked my mom how much it cost. And she's like, well, we didn't buy the most expensive one. We didn't buy the cheapest one. We kind of like bought one that was in the middle and then tried to buy the best one in the middle range, something like that. But it's not great. However, I'm watching all this old ass footage uh, and I'm realizing, so there's actually like a day, a couple of days I brought it to high school, a couple of days I brought it to middle school. Uh, a decent amount of time where you and I were like skiing or outside. I brought it to New Year's one time where we went down the street from your house to the McCaffrey's or McCa something like that, McCaffrey. Yeah. And we had it with us. I mean, there's got to be an hour and 10 minutes worth of footage of us just at their house. Hmm. Um, but a couple, <laughs> a couple of things I, I noticed. Uh, I was a massive dick in middle school. I think I, I leveled off a little bit in high school. Uh, it didn't improve just stopped getting worse no yeah no i i, I think I, I got a little nicer um but i was i was i was kind of mean and condescending prior to then um but things were just way different back then you could push somebody and push them and push them and push them and it just made you look worse right not you particularly or me particularly but you could just be you'd be really pushy and it just made you look worse. 
the other person didn't get like overly offended and have to report you. It was just really clear that you were out of line. Yeah. And that in itself was shameful. Well, and it's, it's one of these ones where, cause um, like professor height talks about this a lot in his, in his talk where he says a lot of these ideas are born out of good intentions where well, like protecting we have, your like, children on the, on the playground. Like you, you don't want your kill, children to, you know, get a bruise or break an arm. Yeah, but like when it comes to the treatment of marginalized groups, for a really long time, we as a country didn't do a good job. And so the logic was we need to do more to bring marginalized groups into the fold. And that's where this creation of like offensiveness kind of got born was people didn't realize that they were saying offensive things and for a while that was actually a good thing is like getting some of the like think about i don't know like 1950s work culture if you had a woman in the office and you just called her toots like did that have to die yeah probably i think there's probably probably other examples but like you, you you basically have once you empower people to be able to take away somebody else's right to speak or to act in a certain way, like you start with the stuff that needed to go. But you so, have some people that say, I have this power now. I'm just going to use it to enforce anything that I don't like. So look, I, I listened to uh, two or three days ago. I listened, to, I listened to NPR in the morning which is pretty liberal leaning. I don't think we have many publications now that are not left or right leaning, if not almost fallen over. Um, but I listened to this, this uh, story about this woman, a black woman who joined a new mother's group. And I was like, oh, okay. At, at, at first, I, I didn't really think much about her race. Oh, okay, so you have a woman, she ha- she's a black woman, she joined the mother's group. Now, she mentioned she lived somewhere in the suburbs uh, in a gentrified neighborhood. And then I thought to myself, well, it's the suburbs. Was it gentrified or it was just a mostly the suburbs? It was just a mostly it's not like the white people moved into, uh, you know, rough area and then started putting in high end retailers, which is what gentrification kind of is and spending more money and upping the rents and pushing everybody who was originally there out. I think also gentrified doesn't really apply to suburbs. Exactly. So, but I, so I'm like, all right, interesting. So, where's she going? She's joined this new mother group. Okay. Now, uh, then she said, so uh, it was really difficult for me as the only woman of color there. And I'm thinking, like, okay, what well, was a new mother's group? Where did the difficulty come in? You know, were they were they treating you differently? And she said, well, you know, most of the time I just spent waiting for someone to say something offensive. And then I thought to myself, so you were just kind of like. You're waiting on this the whole time, and at at the end of the podcast, like she, she, nobody really got into anything offensive, but it was just about her experience, just kind of waiting, and how it was such a traumatic experience for her to be part of something where she could potentially have been offended. So I actually think she's a victim here, in that she's bought into this culture that like white people will eventually say something that's offensive. But Which, 
and again, like, again, it's born out of good intentions of did white people say offensive shit in the past? And have we started to hold them accountable for it? Yes. But, but now there's this as, narrative. But she went as far to say for the last 400 years, uh, these people have kept my people as slaves. And I thought to myself, like, one, you don't know the people in the group. Like, they could be first generation from other white countries that may have gone, like, look at people leaving uh, um, Ukraine right now. Yeah, like, you, you don't, just because they're white, maybe they speak English great, and, you know, or maybe they're first or second generation. Um, this has nothing to do with slavery or oppression of, but the point was just, it was all about this kind of offensive, and I, they finished the article, and I just, I thought to myself, what was this about? I thought it was a, an article about being a new mother. And in fact, it was an article about how difficult it was to potentially, maybe there was a possibility that this person could be offended. Well, so here's something interesting that, that I've learned in the last but, year. But my, my point is, sorry to stop. Yeah, I just, go ahead. Is, did we need to create a safe space for, for that? Well... It's difficult for you or I to be able to see this in the same way because like maybe less so for you than me, but how many times have you been in a place and been the minority? Where so like I was, imagine I just, being in a I was, I was just thinking that statement right now that uh, I was and, and you actually said maybe less so for me. I, I spent a lot of time where I'm maybe the only white person in the room, whether it's um, you know, because the the majority well not the majority the entirety of of my in-laws are non-white or because i have many minority friends that i just go and spend time with um without recruiting other white people to go with me but it and and you know given they are not my former uh ancestors oppressors okay but there's a totally uncomfortable element and you just have to get over that uh, and I'm not saying it's the same. I'm just saying for me, there's an element that's uncomfortable. I have to get over it really quick if I if I want to enjoy myself. I can sit so, there in the discomfort. Let, let me let me try and put this put it this way. So, like the first time that you were hanging out with your in laws, like the the discomfort that you felt because you didn't share like a culture or a background with them, even though they were being accepting and friendly to you, right? I, I okay. I mean, I'm not. Like, I, I'm assuming that they were all being nice to you and like welcoming you in, I, right? I, I'll, I'll tell you first off the bat, there was no discomfort. I, I, I don't exist in this kind of. Un, I, I just refuse. Okay. To. But so maybe I'm a bad like, example. Like, yeah, but you just said that there's times where like you feel like a little bit uncomfortable I, because I mean, because like you don't have the same kind of cultural background. Well, look, the 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 first time I I w went out with uh, this part of the family in entirety was the first new year's and i came in i got introduced and i was like oh yeah i'm just actually here to do the audit i'm just gonna... <laughs> like what <laughs> i like i acknowledged it and then it was you know whatever you know i was like i, I recognize it it's, it but it's yeah like, and i used it as kind of her for just to get the fuck over it like i you know end of yeah well because like the the person that i'm dating is also <laughs> not white and what it's made, one thing that I've learned it, from the stories she's told me 
is, is a term I like to call quantum racism. Is it what it's there if you look for it or it's not? It, yeah. Actually, it's the opposite it, for, for us as white people. Like it, we're like with quantum physics where there would be certain phenomena that like will collapse in one and state or another. It both exists and doesn't exist at the same time. But once you observe it, it'll either it'll materialize into one form or another, right? So you think about like the wave going through the two slits, and when you observe it, you'll see that it went through one slit or the other. But when you're not observing it, it behaves as if as if it went through both. So like she tells me stories where I say that person was racist to you, and but when I'm with her, when I'm out in public, mm-hmm. and the two of us are together, nothing racist happens to her. And yeah, that's because she's see, with can, someone who's white. For those of you, yeah, but no. Yes, but no. That's not going to, she may actually be treated worse in some cases. But you draw a, per, what you just said when it comes to quantum and observing and the two slits is an ideal parallel explanation that probably me and one other person or probably nobody else because I don't know how many people have understanding of quantum mechanics Uh listen to this but but i think that's that's your point is that you don't see it outside of you know well, when you when you're there to observe it doesn't happen well so the, the but it goes further than that because like if as a white person i never see racism because it doesn't happen around me then it would you, be very easy for me to draw the conclusion that it doesn't exist. Let me ask you a question. What we would call reverse racism, which is actually just straight up racism by people, um, I, think, I think the general populace would consider reverse racism just because it's against well, the Well, I want to hit the comments from drunk real quick. Okay. First of all, the topic was going to be about coddling children and how we're raising a weak generation in terms of dealing with adversity and now we've kind of rambled on to racism but drunk says it's levels to racism as a black person we have to pick our battles with racism i'm just being honest and i have heard that from my girlfriend and yes i I completely agree i'm not saying it's right but his experience tracks with what i have heard you're saying you're not saying he's right or you're not saying it's right that he has to do that I'm saying it's not right that he has to do that. I'm yeah, saying that he's just, right in expressing not, like yeah. what he's, he's experienced. He's correct in sharing his experiences. It's not just. It's not fair that he has to deal with that. Yeah, um, that's a better way of putting it. Yeah, I'm just just because the words you're using are inter- interchangeable with their yep. exact opposite meanings. Yeah. Um, but, um, and I don't think anybody should have to endure racism. I actually like. In, in the racial aspect of things, I think our world's going in a really good direction where we're becoming more accepting to diversity. And also, like, I don't know if I, that. Uh, well, yes and no. I think, I think simultaneously, both yes and no. Uh, I think in the US lately, maybe not so much because we have, because we have more extremism happening. But I think, so no in that respect. But yes, in the aspect where, like, and in a weird way, if I turn on the TV and there's a sitcom playing, you can bet your ass there's a girl kissing a girl, somebody's in a wheelchair, and every other person is Asian, black, Spanish, or, you know, who knows. 
Um, so whereas 10 or 15 years ago, you turn on TV. But... Like look at like the TV show friends, like four white people in an apartment that not all that, that none of them could afford and none of them could afford collectively. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, but so I think, I think we're, you know, we're in, we're, we are in an interesting place, but but the avoidance and the shutdown of adversity when it's not so uh, in the in the Professor Height conversation where they talked about a discussion about they said there were two feminists. Do you remember this? One was arguing one thing. The other was arguing the opposite thing. Do you remember what those things were? The, the, I think the question was, is the United States a rape culture? And you had two so what, feminists. So one, so one woman was arguing the U.S. is a rape culture. The other was arguing the U.S. is not a rape culture. And then this is an academic debate. So yeah, and the students were having mental breakdowns on campus, and and they demanded that this debate not be allowed to happen on the campus. And I think it, it wasn't allowed to happen on the campus. Yeah, it got and, shut down because of the protests. And the students, um, didn't, have, the students didn't have to go to the they. They just said it was so traumatizing the fact that this conversation would be happening on camp on campus, which I actually yeah, think that's is a great conversation. Like, but it got like. First of all, I want to hit Drunk's comment, and then I want to throw out something to you because this is kind of what we talked about last weekend. Don't Drunk's forget, is like, don't, don't forget what you want to say to me because I want to talk exactly about what what Drunk is going to say. Sorry. Go yeah. Ahead. So. Um, Drunk says, this might be a hot take, but I hate forced diversity in TV shows. Friends was a great show and all that, and it, and it was all white, and I was okay with it. Um, but I think, yeah, there's some forced diversity where you're just like, why, why are you making the show this diverse just because you want to show that you can? Well, but like, it's, almost, it's almost, the thing is, it's, it, it's borderline unrealistic. So I'll tell you something about Friends, the fact that there's five, four, five, six white friends that live in an apartment. I mean, outside of the aspect of the apartment being more exponentially for the fact that the story about six white friends, totally believable. There's, yeah. It, if there was a story about one Chinese person, one Mexican person, one uh, black person, one wheelchair person, uh, one transgender person, that is less believable. <laughs> Just, just right. there. it's just you know, it's just how it, it, it's just that you can't you can't hit you can't hit all of them. Um, and Seinfeld, I, uh, I think, Seinfeld yeah. another one show I love again, but not unbelievable. Now, is it nice to have other TV shows or inclusive TV shows? Yes, but when you're just adding them up because the producers think it's a really good idea to kind of lump them all on, so wheelchair people, wheelchair using people will watch the show. Wheelchair people will will watch the show irregardless. But if you're if they sense that you're throwing somebody in the show because they're in a wheelchair, they're just gonna say, "What the fuck?" Yeah. Back up, so, back so up the question that I wanted to throw that I threw out to you last weekend that I don't think either of us really had a good answer for, because like we can look at the example of the the, the two feminists having a debate on campus as an unjust cancellation, and say that 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 event should have happened because that's a worthwhile debate. I'd, because I'd there's love good to, points I'd on both sides. So Drunk just said, U.S. has been a rape culture from the beginning. I mean, I, to a degree, agree with that. But I would love to hear the opposing argument. Because I, I'm just intrigued to know what they... I, 
I would I like to hear both sides because I think that, like that's a case where you could probably make a strong argument either way. And I'm really curious the other side of it. Yeah. But so no the question that I had to ask of you, because like we talk about like students asking for disinvitation or canceling of like campus events because they disagree with a particular speaker's viewpoints. And so I, I asked you the question, what if you were to have somebody like David Duke invited on campus, who, if you don't know who he is, he's like, oh, the oh, oh he's a like, Holocaust. He, he's a KKK guy and he's a Holocaust denier. Right. So like a white supremacist and the college would like say like, we're going to have David Duke on and he's going to be part of a debate. And if you were to have student led protests saying the college shouldn't be encouraging somebody like David Duke on campus, I would actually agree with the students in that case. So, but this is a, this is, you know, there's schools that are canceling books right now. My but hold thinking on, let, is, let's finish this out. Okay, go ahead. Because I just I, I want to think because I'm establishing a point, which is I think that there is some level of extreme of extreme viewpoints that we would all be able to agree on, or the vast majority of people would be able to agree on, as a college should not be inviting this person to speak. Okay, right? so so that, that's extreme racism. You have an extremely racist speaker coming. Let me ask you a question. What about allowing a flat earther to give a presentation speech about why the earth? So this is where it gets interesting. Different, different, same, same extremism aspect, different, Mm -hmm. different industry, different topic. Yeah. And I think you could start off by making the argument that flat earthers are less harmful to people than extreme racists. But the question is, we've now established... But hold on, like, the question uh, that I'm asking I mean, is, whatever. Yeah. we've now established that it is okay to have a, like, to, to have a college turn its, change its mind on whether it's inviting a speaker after student protests, if that speaker is offensive or extreme enough, right? Yes, it sounds like so, we're okay with doing that, yeah. We yeah. kicked David so, Duke off campus. Now we got right, a flat so, Right. So now the question is, since we've said it's okay to do this, it's no longer a question of should we allow student protests to demand the cancellation of an event? The question is now, what criteria are we using? So because, yeah, like, for example, but look, I agree with you. You said, you know, a, a college telling David Duke he can't speak because he's obviously a fucking Nazi white supremacist, like, He's, it's, it's bad what he's saying. But then I thought about it more and said, you know, college is an institution that is teaching critical thinking, giving the students an exercise with an extremist speaking and letting them evaluate this person because they, because they will encounter that person in real life. They will encounter people who purport what he is saying in real life and will need to make decisions on it. Is... Am I, is, is a college allowing someone to in support of that person? So that's, that kind of brings me to the other wrinkle that I threw into this one, which is some people will come to a college and they'll be paid an appearance fee of some amount of money. This you mentioned, yeah, yeah. And other times, like they might just come to a college and not be paid at all. So like, I would say that if the college is paying somebody 
to come speak at the college. Like that, that shows more endorsement from the college of that person's viewpoints because they're giving them money. So let me ask if, you a question. Let me ask you a question. A scientific uh, college, which teaches astrophysics, for example, RPI. okay, brings in and pays a flat earther to give a presentation because they want to expose their students to a viewpoint that they are likely to run into in the future. And they want this to, boy, we're out of time. Do you want to continue this conversation? Yeah, let's keep going for like another 10 All right, minutes. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to drop Instagram. So sorry, Instagram guys. Uh, make sure you subscribe to YouTube and every audio podcast platform. We're out on Instagram. All right. So, so hey, drunk, let, let's college. hit drunk's comment real quick. Can I get some money out loud? Yeah. Um, right, so right drunk back. says it's a tough call because I'm all for every, like everybody's opinion being heard. And he says he's listened to David Duke, but, but college kids are easily influenced. And I think that there's a good point there and that, yeah, like you've got college kids that could, that by allowing him on campus, there might be a few people on campus that could be swayed to his side because he got the exposure of because you're allowing someone to speak at your college, you're giving them a platform yeah, to reach a wider audience. I think that's the fear with allowing this, that somebody to talk on that. Um, and so I'd like, no, but he just, but what, what drunk just said was I've listened to David Duke on YouTube just to hear the perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think hearing the opposition, first off, just shutting down the opposition, not hearing them. I don't think is healthy at all. Well, that's how you get echo chambers. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you, you're, you're just not, you're not open to listening to the other side. But I think when it comes to a college paying an appearance, yeah. like, like, because, like, like, for example, a couple of years ago, the college that I graduated from was going to pay somebody that was like, I don't remember who it was, but it was like somebody that was associated with Breitbart and like the Trump campaign nice. and a whole bunch of stuff like that. And the college was going to be paying for their appearance. And I wasn't OK with that because that's taking money that could be used for something good and giving it to somebody who is demonstrably bad. Yes. But is it for the greater good of the students to hear this perspective? Because 98% of them will, will gather talking points and, and, and have a better understanding of what the opposition is saying. And we don't worry about the crazy ass 2% because you know what? When it comes to a democracy, the two percent don't matter, which is the issue that the and we talked about is the U.S. fucked. Um, the U.S. is fucked because those two percent matter too much these days. You know, but I, I I think I think being able to listen to these extreme perspectives, I think is 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 good. It's important to listen to them so that you can know how to dismantle the arguments. Um, I, I guess I think that would be worth paying for if you're a scientific college and, and, and I, I, if I was a scientific college and I taught astrophysics, you bet your ass, I would want the best proponent 
of flat earthism to come on and give it give a talk i wouldn't want somebody that is, looks looks and sounds like a nut i would want the best to come on board and, and share their perspective i'd be open to interesting question that. here i'd be i'd be open to them having a debate um because he says it, like this hypothetical college that would be banning David Duke from coming to campus, do you think that they would ban Louis Farrakhan, um, like a black Islamic leader, who are both technically extremists? Well, today, that's an actual inter- uh, that's an interesting question, and my bet would be that Farrakhan would be less likely. I agree to be to be disinvited. I agree because because even though his views are extreme. Well, like is, radical leftist views instead of radical you right. want their students to be exposed to that. Yet they are shielding them from the other opposition. And I think we need to hear both so we can have a because so we can have a have the majority settle in the middle. Versus the majority settle askew. And also, it's not just settling the middle, but it's having the perspective of the other person. When I'm when I was running my company, it was so important for me to hear people before giving my opinion because I wanted to know the intricacies of their opinion before it was tainted with mine. Right? I wanted, to, even if I knew they were wrong to begin with. I wanted to give them the platform to convince me otherwise. Yeah. But can we can we in in the sense of wrapping this up? I'm not I mean I, I have more time if, if you, you want to spend it. I know we got a late start, but um but in the direction of wrapping this up, can we bring this back to how people are being more coddled, how the don't say gay bill, which I'm not entirely against, but I think it's a step in the wrong direction. Um, well, yeah, and don't say, say gay bill doesn't doesn't say you can't talk about gay stuff in school. It says you can't talk about sexual, reproductive, whatever. That's not that, that's a small part of the bill. We we need to go back through and like reread the, that and see how it's actually being implemented. I actually think we we misunderstood it actually. I think it is it does lean a little more radical republican, but Yeah, we need to we need to go back through and, and like actually research that one now that it's been in effect for a little bit. Um but the in terms of like going back to what my professors talked about about how the kids that they're teaching today and not kids because they're college students, but I'm going to call them kids um, need more handholding, need more group work. But you are, are a kid. You are a kid. If you're not independent, if you're not independent. If you can't do your own laundry, you can't think your own thoughts. You can't complete your own homework assignments. You're not an independent adult. So one of the professors that I had freshman year, I talked with her a couple years ago and she had transitioned out of teaching and into like an academic support role. So oh, one of her like the old type of transitioning, not the new type of. Yeah, yeah. And so her her job instead of teaching students every day in a classroom, her job was to primarily help with intervention with like mostly freshmen that struggled in their first or second semester. So like you just turned in like a 0.7 GPA in your first semester. So you're going to go into her office and she's going to try and help you 
figure out what went wrong and what you can do to like be better in the second semester. Yeah, I mean, either you're out, you don't see a second semester, or if you're going to continue to pursue a second semester, what needs to change? Well, it, it, I, it wasn't it wasn't like a threat of like we're going to kick you out if you can't get your GPA up. It's uh, more what, like what are you doing, spending the money and spending the time in a second semester? Right, but it's also so something needs to change. What, like. What are the things that were challenging to you? Why? Because like you got into this school, so your grades had to have been decent enough in high school. You made it through high school. Your grades would predict that you should have a 3.0 and you had a 0.7. Mm. What went wrong? And what are the things, what kind of help can we offer you to, to help that out? So it's a lot of coaching and some counseling and stuff like that to help the students that need the help. And she talked about how often like, let's say you're you're the student and you you turn in the point seven, you go to, to this the, to this lady's office and she gives you like a game plan for the second semester. Three weeks into the second semester, your parents call her and say, how's Justin doing in his second semester? She's like, I, I, I can't, I can't talk tell to you. Them. I can't tell you that you're, you're son of an adult. Right. But. She says the number of times that I would get those kind of calls of parents trying to like guide their kid through college. And she's like, this is the problem is these kids never had the chance to try and be independent because somebody would always swoop in and save them if things got bad enough. And now things are bad enough and the parents can't help them. And so I can give them the strategies. I can give them the tools. But at the end of the day, a toolbox is useless if you keep it closed. Or if the parents don't allow it to be given to you. <laughs> well, that too. But you talked a lot about how, how much closer students are with their parents and how much closer parents are with the students and how harmful that is. Because like, when I was in college, my mom taught at the university I went to. Mm -hmm. And... But I, don't I think wouldn't hands on at all with your academics. Not she, not at all. At like all, right? every once in like there was one semester where like her class, she was teaching a class that was like a floor above mine at the same time. So like we would cross paths in the hall, and like I'd wave to her, and like maybe she'd hand me some mail. Because <laughs> you were not living at home, yeah. No, I was living on campus, and so yeah, yeah she would be like, "Hey, this came for you." Uh, all right, cool, thanks, mom, and. I mean, but you had a great family dynamic. You know, I think about raising children and being super hands-off. And I, I just worry if I could sustain this kind of hands-off approach. to, to That same professor that I had that, that, that yeah. ended up going into uh, student support talked about how she had a friend who, who had kids and how, like, he made a, like, he made a point of not child-proofing his house. So he's like, like those electrical socket plastic covers that you can put in to protect kids. She's like, she's, he's not buying any of that stuff. Like these kids are going to have to learn, man. But I mean, it's almost dead, deadly, but, but yeah, I think. No, it won't kill you. I've seen it happen. I've seen someone stick a fork into a light socket. Yeah. I, you know, I, uh, who? My brother. Casey? No. <laughs> dude i watched i watched I, I actually i have more respect for casey the like the more and more i think about it because because you you so casey is james youngest of of three brothers so he's your, your second younger brother the youngest um 
I have a lot of respect for Casey, and and especially watching these tapes that I've seen. Uh, you know, you guys don't have much respect for him because he was an idiot relative to David. But also, you guys had several. How how much younger uh, is is he than you? Uh, Casey is nine years younger than me. Derb is four. Yeah, so he's there was a big age gap, and. Yeah, I don't know how your younger brother is doing in the professional world, but I know that he had a rough bringing up because of his older brothers. I don't know if that helped him or not, but generally, what we, generally, what we're saying now is that um, it would it would be helpful for you to have rougher formative years. Yeah, and you can go too far. Yeah, obviously you can go too far, and maybe in certain circumstances, you and your brother, you and your second youngest brother may have gone a bit too far like i i watch you know some footage and and uh <laughs> and i also have a lot of recollection of that so but well, but that, that's been a criticism that's been lobbed at me a number of but, times but you know I, I i am to a degree worried as an employer where i bring people in my employ and i am their leader and it i actually said this morning i was trying to i was trying to explain something i do a training every thursday morning it's it's 90 minutes to, to two hours. And I was saying something like, yeah, this happens with your client. And you know what? As far as I'm concerned, the client does this or that. They don't respond to you for two days. You know, they can go fuck themselves. And I, I stopped myself short of saying they can go fuck themselves. And I was like, ah, you know, they can go, uh, you know, when a client doesn't talk to you, you know, it's you put them on the back burner. And as far as you're, you're because they don't, you know, it's, uh, I was like, guys, I just spent the last like 19 seconds trying to come up with a nice way to say this because I'm trying not to use curse words. But if you, you know, just like coming from me on a personal level, somebody doesn't respond to you for two days, they can go fuck themselves. You should continue to follow up in a nice way. But just, you can write them off. Your follow-up needs to be your follow-up needs to be your follow-up, but they can go fuck themselves. I'm like, sorry, I don't know another way to put it. That's just me. But what I'm saying is that I worry that, that I have my meaning to be ever offensive. And if I say something that's offensive to people, the majority of the time somebody says, and this is very rare, somebody says something, oh, that was offensive, I will review and usually change. Or I'll have a conversation with them and, and make sure that we, our communication is on the same level as each other. And either they're not offended or I'm fixing what I said. But I'm worried that this new generation of people doesn't, you know, rather than, so they come to my employer because they want to follow me and follow my training, but they don't like my training, so they just have me fired. Then they have no one to train them. So then they quit and go to a different career. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough. Like when I was in the accounting office, like when I first started as an intern at the CPA firm, like I didn't really know a lot about what I was doing. I had some technical knowledge, but I didn't have the practical knowledge. And so very often, especially when I was starting out, I would go to other staff members and say, hey, I'm running into this problem. Like, can you help me figure this out? And the first thing that the, the more experienced people would say was, how was it treated last year? Look at the last year's return. Look at the last year's documents and try and follow what the person who came before you did, because that's probably what we want you to do this time. And it'll also show you like where the inputs go and that kind of stuff, right? 
And when I first started out, that was a really unsatisfying answer because I just wanted to finish it. And if you know the answer and you can tell me it, why don't you tell me it? Yeah, but it's teaching him into fish versus giving him a fish. So uh, like a month or two ago, I was on a call with the partners at the firm because I'm part-time there. So I still do some work for them. And they were asking me how things were going. And one of the things I said to them, I was like, you know, when I started out like this answer of what did we do last year? And I was like, I didn't like that. But now, like when I have some of these projects that I've passed off to new staff members, because I don't have the capacity to to do like when I was full time, I could do it, but I'm only doing like five or six hours a week. I just can't. And so they'll ask me questions about it. And my first answer is, have you looked through last year's documents? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, and I'm, I'm seeing the value in it now because you need to learn how to be able to read through these things and figure stuff out on your own. And only once you've gotten to that point, do you get to ask the question of how do I do this? Because sometimes there are things that are difficult to explain and you need to ask. But how hard did you try to figure it out on your own first? How, how do we create a tougher next round? So the people that follow you, how do you create people who are tougher? So Drunk on YouTube just said, this generation's, this generation that's coming up is going to be so mental, mentally weak. That it's crazy. So Which I agree. And we were talking about, you know, raising the next generation of children. How is it that you create a next level, a level after you, that's resourceful, more resourceful, and more able to figure things out, more resilient than you are? Is it by ignoring them and forcing them to figure out their issues? Is, is it by giving them, is it by teaching them to fish? Is it by, is it by starving them out so they have to learn to fish on their own? What, how? I don't know. I think and, and, in and, many and ways. Also back to, hold up. And also back to being offended. Like on two levels. How do we, how do, how do we create a stronger next next level? Well, also think about it. There's nothing like inherently wrong with having someone call somebody out for saying something offensive because you know when when employed properly that's a good thing because it gets people to realize that they were saying that's something that's offensive so we uh, well, uh, real quick let me ask you to pause on that note we had a meeting this morning and we were talking about building rapport with clients and i said there's going to be a series of questions that you're going to ask your clients that are going to be on a personal level and you have to be careful. So when you ask somebody, "Oh, where did uh, you know? Where are you from?" Uh, a lot of people take offense to that. Where are you from? Because they're like, "Oh, they're asking me because of my skin color. Where am I from?" Uh, you ask somebody um, if you don't. You know, you ask somebody, "Why are you moving?" They might be offended because maybe they went through a breakup or they can't afford their place. So. There's a lot of this potentially offensive fodder for, you know, people can be offended, but there's a way of having this emotional intelligence. And I was like, and I actually, for probably 30 or 40 minutes today, I talked about how to, you know, protect yourself from being offensive to people and employ emotional intelligence. So rather than saying, where are you from? Where did you grow up? You might say, uh, yeah, I'm curious, but uh, if you don't mind me asking, where where are you from? Where did you grow up? 
but leading with, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah. Because people are so offended. So Drunk says, comedians can't even say offensive stuff anymore. And the stage is the one place anything goes. Well, it was, but now some comedians are being booed off stage. In one case, uh, there was a comedian that was uh, an Indian guy who was at Columbia University making a joke, which was actually, it was a joke that actually came from his audience uh, where he was make he was saying something about black people or gay people. And hey, can, you, can you finish telling this story? I'm going to rinse out a glass so I can pour myself some sake. That's fine. And and somebody from the audience said to him, if gay was being a choice, why are black people gay? And what was implied in that statement was, if there's enough adversity as a black person, why would you choose to be gay? Point being, people aren't choosing to be gay. Anybody who's gay or understands being gay, it's not a, it's not a choice. It is, it is what it is. You're, you're gay, you're gay. But he made the joke nobody would choose to be gay and that's evident in the fact that james now you're listening to me uh why would black people be gay if it was a choice why would why would they sign up for the additional adversity yeah there's black people who would want to be gay and black right like why would you you know you if it was a choice why would you choose to do it because you're you're just adding a level of of adversity and what he said was you know he got the joke from his audience his audience was the one that like made the joke for him and he asked if he could use the joke However, when he gave that joke at Columbia University, he got booed so badly that they actually asked him to leave. And he's like, oh, funny, funny, continued his set. And they actually cut his mic and escorted him off the stage because he had lost the audience. Yeah. It's, it's tough because it's, yeah, I think and I've said this a number of times. Um, like when you're on stage, there's Jim Jeffries puts it best. He's doing a routine where he, he, it's his bit on Bill Cosby and rape. And he says, there are things that I think, and there are things that I think are funny. (laughs) And like when I'm up here, my job is to say things that I think are funny, because if I just start talking about my actual opinion, then you're all going to be sitting in the audience saying, oh, Jim's lost his edge. Like, <laughs> it's, but it's, it's a, a, a matter of having an edge. It's a matter of being... Well, the, the, uh, for this particular comedian, it is. It's a matter of walking the line of being offensive. And then sometimes, of course, you're walking this line. You know, some people might fall on one side of the line or the other. And, you know, I think, and I think it's important that you and I remind people of who we are. So we talk about racism, we talk about racist, and um, we talk about all sorts of things, but but that's from our perspective. And I think, you know, here's a a point, respecting perspective, right? We can share our perspective and people might say you're wrong, but no, we're not wrong. This is what we're feeling and it's our perspective. I had a conversation last night about respecting people's feelings. And I said, I can acknowledge your feelings. I may not respect it. If you're the president of the company or the president of the country and you go on stage and cry, I might have understanding of your perspective and feelings, but I don't respect it. You're in that role to be strong. Yeah. So if you're the president of the country 
I've lost I've, I've lost a certain level of respect for you. Um, so you drunk's comment about asking where you're from, like hits directly on the point that you were making in terms of your training, where he was talking about how on a job interview, the employer asked where he was from and it was a very white employment place. And he almost lied because where he's from is one of the worst parts of the city. So like that asking somebody where they're from can very much make them uncomfortable. I had a conversation with an agent last Friday and I was told by the agent, um, I was curious where the agent was from just personally. I didn't, but again, it didn't change my interaction. I really try to keep my interaction with people the same across every level. It doesn't matter where they're from. Or not. Uh, I didn't know where this person was from. And um, in that conversation, they said, well, I'm actually not from here. My family doesn't uh, even, my immediate family doesn't even speak English. I was like, oh, it's, it's really interesting. Now, my thinking was, now I know you a little better. That per- I, I, I imagine that person's thinking was that was very uncomfortable for me. Like, I don't know. Um, la- when I was when I landed in Charleston after my trip to New York a month ago, like um, my I asked my Uber driver where he was from because he had an accent, and I was like, "Are you from uh, like the Caribbean or anything? Like you don't have an accent that's from here?" He's like, "No, I'm actually from Cameroon." And that started a conversation. So, like, I think a lot of it is in how you ask the question. Um, it's, but, like, but are it's, you asking it because I, you're interested in them or you're looking to judge them? And I tried to put it in a way of, like, no, you're an interesting person to me. I oh, want to know more about you. In my 30 or 40-minute conversation about perspective, it was, it was all about intent, right? Like, you're asking these questions to get to know somebody better. You're asking somebody... You're asking somebody about themselves so that you can know them and understand. Because here's what happens. You see somebody, you hear somebody for the first time, you draw on your experience and what you know, which is every other person that fits those attributes. So you're stereotyping because that's what the brain does. But the more questions, the more fact-finding you do, it allows you to know that person on a much more intimate level. So speaking of intent, I think that's also where like, jokes come in so my girlfriend is black and i've made a number of racist jokes to her and she knows their jokes she thinks they're funny she knows that i don't actually mean them i was telling when i was in new york i was telling a friend of one of the jokes that i told to her and he looked at me with absolute shock he says wait you said that to her i said yeah he's like how could you say that? And I said, because she knew it was a because joke. We, because we understand each other. Like, because I'm dating. Very, like, she know. Like, it's people make jokes all the time. Maybe not as, maybe probably less than they make racist jokes. But again, it's intent. But, but you know, when I walked into that New Year's party, and I knew I stood out, and actually, I got the idea of me being there for an audit from somebody else. I was like. Oh, it's a white dude. What's he here for a fucking audit? Uh, and so in the country moving forward, I was like, I know I'm at inconvenient time. I'm just here for an audit. Could you show me the owner of the house? Like I just, yeah. I kind of walked around like, and kept yeah, playing she'll that. Make, she'll make white people jokes to me and I don't get offended at all. Like, because again, it's, it's the intent. Like, right. And, and she realizes that like, if I, like, if I was really racist, I probably wouldn't have like gone on a date with her. 
you know, I mentioned yesterday, I uh, I got off the train and, you know, I get off at a big kind of junction where a lot of people get on off the train. And there was probably like 400 people that got on the train same time as me. So 60 people walked out of the same door as me. Um, and I, I let a woman get on the escalator before me. And I only saw her out of the corner of my eye last second. So I almost didn't let her ahead of me. But I noticed it was a woman and, and, and she had like a bag or some shit. And I was like, you know what? It just like, it would be noble of me to, you know, it'd be the right thing to do to just like let the, you know, just step out of the way. So I let her go. But there was a split second where I was just like, I'm sort of ahead of this person. I should go. And I thought in my mind after that happened. So the woman was, was, uh, was black. I thought in my head after, as she kind of went ahead of me, that had I stepped in front of her, she may have interpreted that as racist. But I, I, I think I think people on the receiving end of the majority of racism can uh, can and maybe they're entitled to interpret a lot more things that are non-racial as racial. Yeah. So Drunk says there's a video going around of a white girl and her black boyfriend and he's shirtless and she's saying she purchased him for a good price. And that's funny. It's funny. Yes, that's funny. Like as long as he's in on the joke, but you'd think he is. If now if you find your now you're you're not gonna go to their fucking Thanksgiving and say that. No. But again, that's where humor has its place. And you're the, the whole idea of humor and comedy is you're touching on sensitive topics. And it's funny because it's sensitive. Well, when, like, it, when it's insensitive and when you're being a dick, and, and, and then it's not funny. Yeah, like for example, a couple of weeks ago, my girlfriend comes over and the, like when she leaves in the evening, um, she, took a, she wore a pair of my sandals home. Mm-hmm. And... Then, like, the next time she came over, like, she was leaving. She's like, oh, I need to bring your sandals back the next time I come over. I say, no, nah, it's all right. Like, I understand that's what you people do. You steal. Well, again, that's, and, that's and, but, No, but she but, – But, again, it, it's – It was it's, meant as a joke, and it was interpreted Now, as if a joke. you guys have this running racial commentary where you're, you're constantly degrading each other, and it's funny, it's funny until an extent. Well, what I told her is I said, look, if I ever say something that's actually offensive, I want you to call me out on it. I want you to say, James, that was too much. Yeah. But but the fact that, especially you're in South Carolina where there are, there are basically two cultures, black and white. There are two cultures. You know, like that, that was my – so I, didn't, I never really understood racism until I moved to South Carolina. And then there was only two races. Like I just thought everybody was the same. That's because the Asian kids, the black kids – Hispanic kids at our high school. We we all shopped at the same grocery store. We all lived in similar looking houses. There was not much difference. But when I moved to South Carolina, I realized there was a hard line between black and white. And, you know, that can be very uncomfortable for a lot of people. So you have to navigate around that. And if you truly believe all black people steal, then you're probably a scumbag. Well, yeah, no, I... I... The, the reason why I said it was to highlight the, the ludicrousness of the state of the idea. And also she's talked about how 
like she grew up in Jamaica. So she says, I didn't really see racism until I came to the United States. So it's something that like she's been learning about. And like, I've kind of had to tell her a couple of times, like, like when she tells me a story about something that happened when I wasn't there, I was like, that was racist. She says, I didn't think of it that way. And I was like, it was, and here's why. But back to college. Let's relate back to college. Does a math class have to talk about systemic racism? Or should they just talk about calculus? I think that there's a time and a place for, like, if you want to talk about inequities in our society, there's a time and a place for it. And, like, that would be either a class that's focused on it or a class that's kind of general in topic. So if you're you're doing, like, an English literature class, maybe having a couple pieces that talk about that could be a good inclusion. But if it's like a hyper-focused physics class or like an accounting class or a finance okay. class or, or huh? I think we both agree that it has no place. Yeah, but like if you're in a class where it can be introduced as part of the curriculum, sure, go ahead. And if you want to have like... Let me ask you this though. Trigger warnings. So... We've so always had English, those. In if you're in English, if you're in English lit class, and you're about to read a book that talks about rape, or it talks about racism, or it talks about uh, robber armed robbery, which could trigger somebody who maybe went through an armed robbery, uh, do you need to have a trigger warning? I've gone back and forth on this, and the more I think about it, the more I think it's okay. And here's why. Um, well, every movie, just for the record, every movie you watch says, hey, rated R because of nudity, swear words, and violence. Rated right, so, PG-13 words and, and yeah. frontal nudity. So you're actually, you, you've already caught one of my points. I was going to make it about TV where it says, you know, like rated M because of whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So you know it's, and so I think about, like, I'm super afraid of spiders. So I would love if I'm watching like maybe a nature documentary, if they were to say like, hey, by the way, in five minutes, we're going to show a picture of a spider. I would love that because like if I'm watching a scene of like they're in the jungle or something, like I'm constantly on edge of like when they like go to the next shot that there's just going to be a spider, which flips me out. And so it allows for, for the people who don't care about a trigger warning, it doesn't have any effect on them whatsoever. You can just be like, yeah, I don't care. I'm just going to read. But for the people who it really does affect, and there is legitimate, there are people that legitimately are affected by these things. <coughs> What's the harm in letting them know, hey, by the way, this covers these topics. And that well, way I don't, you can I'm, mentally I'm, prepare I, yourself. I think it's how you deliver it. I think if you deliver it as a trigger warning, I think that's poorly executed. If well, that's, you deliver that's, that's, it as that's a, messaging. That's bad, wor- it, that's bad wording. It's bad wording. I think if you deliver it as a topical uh, synopsis, then that's fine. Right. So we're, again, we're achieving the same we're, goal. We're just we're achieving the same goal, but we are catering to the perspective of people who want to be offended. 
So, yeah, but at the end of the day, let's where, think about of all the but, things like this. This to me is one of those ones where like it's not actually harming anybody. Whereas these well, other I think, ones I think, it, are, I think it is that if it is a trigger warning, you're inviting people to be offended. So let's talk what what drunk just yeah, said. Yeah, but those people were going. Those people were let's going to be you. offended regardless. Let's talk about our our YouTube comment. I'm in Missouri. It gets real racist here. No joke. Which I know because I I drove. I've been in Missouri. I drove from Colorado across the Midwest. Spent a lot of time Kansas and the other crazy backwards places. We've lived in South Carolina. We visited outside of the major city areas remember that time we went fishing on some like random dock and i was like we're gonna get shot out here that was james island that's still charleston yeah but it was it was we were like some kind of shanty town outside of the main drag um but comment says messed up messed up around here and you get killed if you go to the wrong county type thing and that's 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 actually semi-true uh, I'm going to assume that it's fully true if he's talking about it. Oh. Like I'm not one to discount someone's experiences in this matter, where obviously he hasn't been killed. But to say that, like, someone... Like, think of it. This, this was not long ago. Like, two years ago, Ahmaud Arbery was on a jog through a neighborhood and got shot and killed by, by, by racists. Thankfully, right. those racists are now in jail, but he was jogging. Didn't change the fact that what happens. I go out, I jog uh, a lot of times, especially when it's cold out with the hood on, and I'm just like, "Fuck!" Like you, you know, in this neighborhood, you don't know if I'm black or white. Like, you know, obviously it's not, but, might not be a race, but I think people might just get get their get their uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Get their jollies off the fact that they're chasing somebody who could be. Who, you know, who could be non-white and, and just go after me and, and shoot me because I'm running across the front lawn or somebody. Yeah. And actually, so their initial justification was that they thought he was a burglar or a thief, which was complete but he, bullshit. But, but no, but, he had he had like running clothes on, right? Right. Yeah. No, he was, wearing, he was out for a run. Um, but a good response that I saw to illustrate how it was racist is a white guy goes and he says, I live in a neighborhood similar to where Ahmad Arbery got shot. I'm going to go and do a two-mile run with a TV under my arm. Well, I mean, and like look like I'm a thief, and he's like he's running by people and waving, and they're just waving back. Yeah, yeah. Um, how can we how can we reel this back in? Well, let's try and answer the question that is central to this which is how do we build a more resilient youth because at some point they're going to be old enough to be running things and making decisions and they're not prepared for that right now well as we talked about you know them in college they can't even run their own thing they can't some of them some of them are highly successful yeah but you know we're talking about accountability and just people not being able to, to kind of do things on their own or also accept responsibility for their own bad grades type thing. Um, you know what I think is going to happen? I think you're just going to see delayed development. You're going to see that at some point 
they're going to run into a situation where all the things that they had been able to pull before no longer work. Where they go in, they're, they're working their first job, and they go in for their 90-day review. And their boss says, here are the things that you did that were good. Here are the things that need to be improved. And they're going to realize that, like, calling someone offensive or racist or, or, or like that they need their safe space in the office or whatever doesn't work because the employers just be like, we can yeah, accommodate but, you up until a point, but like, we're but not going to put 70, up with this crap but and we'll find somebody else. But when 70% of that company, including HR and not the four higher up bosses feel their perspective and sympathize with them, just like, just like I said, you know, I, I, I let this woman walk in front of me. I, I, I didn't even look at her. I didn't know her race or skin color or whatever. I let her go ahead of me. But I thought afterwards, had I not let her go ahead of me, she might have looked at me and said, he's a racist motherfucker. He, he you know, elbowed his way in front of me. He, he inserted himself in the line ahead of me. Even though I was ahead of her, technically. Um, you know, we were just kind of even, I was just closer to the escalator. So I was like, Oh, well, you know, there's a woman, I'll, I'll let her go ahead of me. But had I not let her go ahead of me, she could have thought in the back of her mind, this guy's racist. So when 70% of your company or greater thinks like that, your HR department thinks like that, and you bring this, you bring your own spin on things to HR and then suddenly you find yourself being the boss because your boss was fired. Yeah. So let's touch on some more, like since drunks interacting so much, let's hit some more of his comments. He's saying like, we got to let them touch the fire. We've all been through stuff where we had to get something done. There's nobody we could depend on to help says even the athletes are mentally soft now. Like Naomi Osaka dropped out of tennis because she couldn't handle the criticism. And I, I mean, I'm not, so who's, so, who's, who's, who's the gymnast that had the twisties? Biles. I I have more respect for Simone Biles than I do Naomi Osaka. I have equal respect for both. Uh, I don't not at, not as professional athletes. Have you looked at Have you watched some of the like press conferences that these tennis players have to sit through? They have to feel the dumbest and most condescending questions you could possibly imagine. And so Naomi Osaka has a disorder where like she is like super socially anxious where she talks about how basically whenever she's out in public she's listening to headphones and it's just so that way like she doesn't have to listen to the outside world so she's super introverted and for the sport to force her to sit through these press conferences where like again reporters are asking inane questions and like the sport wasn't helping her out at all I can understand why she wanted to pull out. And Simone Biles, with all the the, uh, the the pressure that was put on her and all the criticism that she had to bear, and she was like 20. Like, for her to say, you know what? I need to take a step back from this for my own health. Like, you, well, I, Simone you had, had a case of the fact where she kind of lost, she had effectively, a, a version of vertigo, where, where she... You know, she she wasn't able to find kind of true level ground, which um, could cause severe injury. I mean, yeah, she could have fucking broken her neck doing something crazy. But Naomi Osaka, who couldn't handle 
people asking her tough questions versus somebody who, if they perform, could break their neck. I have more respect for Simone Biles because physically she put herself in physical danger by competing versus Naomi Osaka, who has a mental condition, but... So I look at it this way. Mental versus physical... I'm assigning a greater weight for physical. So I understand your, your, your logic there, but here's, here's my counterpoint is in both cases, the individuals recognized that the path that they were on was not sustainable for them and that for their own health, they needed to withdraw. And so Mental I don't think that we physical. should be, yes, but at the same time, like, you're taking someone who's making a decision that they think is the healthiest for them. I don't think we should be judging them for that. Again, you get the uh, president of the company steps up to the podium and starts crying because things are stressful. Well, here's the difference is if the president of the company resigns and says, I'm not able to lead this company in the way that it deserves to be led because of whatever factors, are you going to respect him? I would, because someone's recognizing if he's they're stepping not capable. Down, if he's right, stepping but that's down. what Naomi, Naomi Osaka was doing. She's saying, I'm stepping down. I'm not competing. Like I'm just going to do my own thing. So she's no longer leading. She's no longer in charge of running a tennis match or anything else. But she's just saying, she I'm stepping up, back. When she steps up next time, I have reduced respect. And, and it's on her to prove herself. It's not her, and I don't think that's I don't I don't think she's a bad tennis player. I don't think she's a bad person. I I'm just waiting for her then to prove herself and go kick some ass. Well, that's fine. But, but like, me, you can look at the president who raised. the president of the company who cries on the podium. You're like, okay, I don't have any respect for that. But if the president resigns and says I need to take some personal time, and then two years later go like goes to a new company and does a good job leading that uh, company. Uh, let's 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 bring this back to the Super Bowl, right? You get a quarterback that says, hey, you know, I'm going to sit this one out. This is too intense for me. And you, you're going to lose respect for that team. So much so that you may say, well, the coach is behind this. The players are behind this. And the quarterback cried his eyes out and, and, and gave up and didn't want to do a Super Bowl this year. You know what? The the 49ers or the, the Dolphins or the Giants or the Broncos so, are no longer my favorite team. So, so – so you're, here's a that's a false analogy though. You change your favorite, though? You change your In, favorite team. It's a false analogy though because you're comparing individual versus team sports, where the team is depending on the quarterback wow. to show up, whereas with Naomi Osaka, the only person that's depending on her to show up is well Naomi Osaka. But if you are team Naomi, you you may soon become team somebody else. Well, yeah, you're going to could, team Serena, and you and, and you're going to say I, lo I lost respect for her because she couldn't step up. Look, if you're on the battlefield and your general says oh, I can't do this one, you, you're going to say fuck. I'm on the I'm on the wrong battlefield, right? Like I don't I don't want to fight for this team. I don't want to fight for for this army. Yeah, but again, we're comparing different areas of life. Yeah, yeah, sure, but what I'm saying really. is emotional strength what you're saying is you can understand where people are coming from and you know we talk i talk i talked with rosh earlier this week or maybe the end of last week and i'm like you know i, I you know james you know, we joke about james being on the spectrum but i also think i'm on the spectrum and, and and you know rosh said to me 
obviously you're not in the spectrum. You can do this, this, and that. And I, I thought to myself, you know, he's like, well, you might be a bit OCD. And I remember thinking like back to when I was like seven, eight, nine years old. And I was at that time being diagnosed with OCD. And then my middle school years and high school years, and you know, now I'm watching these fucking videos, I can see how I was behaving in high school. Uh, the majority of the time I wasn't behaving. I actually was taking no action because I didn't, didn't know what to do. Um, but once I, st I, got, I got out of that and I started reading books and learning behaviors, these are all learned things. And they're things that I actively think about. You know, Rosh comes to my desk two, three times a day, most of the days. And I don't, I can't break what I'm doing because it just doesn't fit. Right? Like it's very systematic for me. Um, but mental strength and mental durability is a, is a, is a big factor in my day to day. And it's things that I, I think about on a regular basis that are an exercise for me. Right, being able to run a mile in in six minutes, versus being able to socialize for an hour, very similar to me. You follow me on this? A little bit. It's trained. Well, yeah, like I think about um, our friend Sam, who was diagnosed autistic, and like. Like medically diagnosed, like one hundred percent. Was he diagnosed autistic. when we were kids, or he was diagnosed afterwards? I'm pretty sure he was diagnosed when we were kids, well, because there was. I think there was a significant amount of parental and professional intervention to help him, like adapt and and live with with the disability. I mean, I, and, I knew he was hardcore on the spectrum, hardcore autistic, but I actually I, I liked the guy a lot. I like having having conversations with him. Um, well, but, so, so but I didn't know he was, he was diagnosed. Yeah. So, like, he is now a professor at RPI. So he's in front of a class, uh, ostensibly five days a week teaching. And you think autistic people aren't, don't like being in front of groups, don't like speaking or whatever. But he has put in the work throughout his life to be able to overcome his disability and in terms of raw intellect, he's as high up there as anybody. I know he's a smart guy. I like him. And and he's been able to overcome his disability and be able to be successful in a career that demands interacting with people. And and he's doing very well. But again, it's it's an exercise in overcoming, right? And that's where I have respect for him. And that's where I lose respect. I don't know shit about Naomi. Like, my, my perspective is very light. It could be changed by the fucking wind. But Naomi versus Simone, I have more respect for Simone. At a surface level, again, I don't know shit, you know? I don't know. I just don't know. Um, but I know Sam. I know Sam. I, I, I like the guy. I like our interactions and correspondence um i mean it's you know i message him once a year on his birthday that's about it but yeah it's again my guiding principle is who are you harming by making this decision so both simone and, and naomi taking a step back 
really the only person that they're harming is themselves. Uh, not not uh, in terms of like their professional opportunities and their monetary, uh, like in their monetary opportunities, but they're also helping themselves with their mental health. They're not harming anybody around them. Whereas like if you're a general on the battlefield or a quarterback of a team and you decide to sit a game out because you're not mentally there, like you're harming the team because they depended on you to play that position. You're harming like your troops because you're not there to make the strategic battlefield decisions. So like Naomi's not hurting anybody by withdrawing maybe like her sponsors and her advertisers or, a little or, bit because like, they got, put money behind got, her. What if she's got 2,000 fans that showed up for the event? And they paid money for tickets. Then she's going to apologize to them and say, I'm sorry, I can't play. And they don't get to see her play. They just wasted $200 in tickets. Yeah, they can still see other people play. Not, they don't care about other people playing. Just like no, if they I, if they, I, they I, soon I, will. If I want to watch the Miami Dolphins, they're, like, oh, they're actually not playing this game. You know, you get the, the 49ers. Um, all right. So um, let's, I gotta go to sleep. Man. Let's wrap up drunk's comments and then um, call it a night because I got a little bit of accounting work to oh, do. Well, dude, can you just real quick tell me? Screw the comments. I need to know. You were in a bicycle accident last weekend, yeah? Yeah, I'm still pissed about it. Tell me what happened. I was on my first group ride in like two or three years. Bicycle, not motorcycle, and. Like, and, and riding in a group is fun because you have other people around. You can ride faster because you have people blocking the wind for you. And there's, there's some friendly competition. Like there's no prize for being like the fastest person, but it's fun to try and see like how fast you are compared to the other people on the ride. Yeah. So we're like 18 miles in and we're actually, uh, so we're on, uh, right in front of the washout on Folly beach. If you remember that. Okay. And like, we had just turned around and so the group was kind of reforming. And so there's like three or four people that are riding in like a single pace line. Mm -hmm. And then like it's split into like, like two or three people that were side by side riding at a double pace line. And then behind that was just kind of a group of people still trying to figure out where they wanted to be. Because they had just turned around. Right. We had been riding for like a mile or two, but like people were still like forming into the group. Because like the group will string there's out. No, there's no like, traffic in that area. There's huh? no traffic in that area, right? There's so not really guys, like yeah. cars are not really a factor. But like the group will kind of string out of like the fast people, the kind of fast people, and then go on down the list. And so like people are still trying to figure out where they want to be in the order for when it gets faster. Yeah. And so I'm in the middle of the pack. And if you've watched like the the Tour de France, like when you see like the kind of just like massive riders where there's not really much organization, but like there's still rules. And so like people will be riding side to side and like front to back, but like, it's kind of just like a ball. Right. Yeah. So I'm kind of in that part of it. And there's probably about 10 people that are around me and I'm kind of in the middle of it. And one of the rules in biking is when you're riding in a group, like you don't want to have vertical overlap of like, here's my wheel. And he, like, imagine the wrist cuts off. So like, here's my wheel and there's their wheel. Like you don't want to have the wheels overlap because that way, if someone moves sideways, you'll touch wheels. Yeah. So when you're in a group where like, if you're not in like a single or a double pace line, like, and you just got like kind of an amorphous blob, it's really hard to keep that rule because 
you've got people on all sides of you and like some people like you might have somebody that's overlapping all the way with your wheel but like you know they're there and so one of the rules when you're in that kind of a situation is that you don't make lateral moves suddenly if you want to move laterally you do it gradually and you try and like signal to other people that that's what you're doing and you also kind of do it with a change in pace. You either back off your pace so that now it's a diagonal move or you come up on your pace so that it's also a diagonal move, which is, again, to give more people time to react to what you're trying to do. You're in a group, yeah. You're in a, you're in a, you're in a congested part of the group. Yeah, yeah. and so right. I'm, sure. I'm in this group and there's a guy that like my wheel is like overlapping vertically with his, but yeah. like we're horizontally apart. And, and I'm yeah. just going straight. I'm not doing anything. I'm just saying, I'm happy with this. I want to see what happens in front of me. And eventually I'll gradually move over to the side yeah, like and join ducks. the line. Like some huh? ducks. Yeah. Like ducks. Right. Exactly. So anyways, this guy just decides to all of a sudden move left. And I had about a quarter second to react. So his back wheel hits my front wheel and my front wheel goes sideways. And I go over the handlebars. I'm not going to show you what my hip looks like. But this elbow is completely raw. And like down to like like that, that fatty tissue layer underneath the skin. Yeah, I know. Um, so, yeah, it sucks. So, so, so how did you go down? Elbow first or hip first? Kind of like elbow and hip, because like if I'm did riding you over, bike, did you go over like, the handlebars? You went no, it was kind of like diagonally over the handlebars. Yeah, like it wasn't like the bike all of a sudden stopped and it flipped me over. It was more like the front wheel went out and the bike went sideways. And then so you if you went, think about like on a motorcycle, like the low forward. side. Yeah, you went forward. But with a low side, like you can kind of bail and like get your like if you're wearing hip pads, you can like you can like kind of grind it out and like minimize your damage. This one happened fast enough that like it was elbow and it was like kind of a swan dive, but diagonally. So like my elbow and my hip took the vast majority of the damage. Mm. And like, I've got some scratches other places, but like, and like this thumb, like you can see, like you can see that my shoulders are fine. Like I got like a little scrape on my ribs, but that doesn't hurt. It's really like this elbow thing where like, and, the thing is, like, you don't realize how often you put your elbows on something until you can't. Yeah, but but they're mostly superficial. You get no no bone chips, no bone breaks, and no, and no, and no ligament. No, I'll, I'll heal up, and people are like, oh, you're going to have a scar. I'm like, I got a scar on my elbow. Who cares? Yeah, who cares? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, if I had a scar on my face, maybe I'd care. But, like, it, yeah. like if someone's saying, like, how'd you get that scar on the elbow? I'm like, that doesn't look good. I'm like, it's my elbow. Do you remember the time where we thought we were going to be shot? Oh, yeah, out? because you, like, you flipped a guy off that like beeped at us when we were riding downtown, and then like he slammed on his brakes. And like and went around the back of his car, opened his trunk. We're like, what the fuck is he getting out of his trunk? Is it a gun? Yeah, so we turned tail and ran. And then we ran, and then you cut. Uh, you, you, you were ahead of me. We were, there was no pack riding. There was no rules. No. You just kind of cut over. I caught your rear tire and just went over the handlebar at maybe 32 miles an hour or some shit like that. Just full So sprinting. the way you went down in that ride was similar to how I went down. 
No, no, I, I, I like somersaulted, um, and and it, it, it I, I feel like yours was more graceful and more damaging, like because you like skidded. I feel like you you skidded. My elbow, like yeah. the the crazy thing is like I'm not gonna show you, but like there's three separate patches. I don't know how. <laughs> But it's not like one big patch. It's like I three feel, separate like, patches that got ground down. I feel like you cut me off in that instance and I, I crash and tumble and burn. I feel like in this instance, you like yours is way more smooth and much more damaging because of the kind of long term grind that you were on it. I feel like you feel like this accident was way worse than, than mine was. Uh I don't know, but yeah, like what what stopped me from going 24 miles an hour down to zero was friction between like my hip and my elbow yeah. and the asphalt. But smooth, yeah, but smooth because you coached it. <laughs> um, yeah. all right. I'm just lucky that I didn't get hit by anybody behind me. Because the other I, thing that I did is like as soon as I, I was down on the ground, like I didn't move at all. Because like that's another rule you, of crash. You talk? You talk? No, I didn't. I, I couldn't really tuck. But mm. like. I just stayed put because it's much easier to dodge something that isn't moving. Yeah, exactly. So you go like, um, yeah. I mean, generally the rule would be you just kind of talking to a ball, so no you. And if they do, you're kind of nice, right? Um, but yeah, um, we'll have to talk more about that. Uh, not the new bike, right? No, thankfully it's the old bike. So like, one person was nice enough to like while I was gathering myself, he took my bike off to the side and like kind of like reset the chain and check to make sure that it was mechanically sound. <laughs> Did you get back out of like, ride there? You get back out of No, ride? if I if I had to, I could have, but so how you one, of my, one of my friends was on the ride and she said that she was she's like if you want a ride back to your car, I can go pick up my my car and and give you a ride back. And I thought about it for a couple of seconds and I was like that's probably the smarter idea. She was cute. Um I'm not interested in her like that. Um, All right, let's wrap up. Uh, yeah, no, she's a good friend though, and I, I, I am thankful for what she did for me. All right, cool. So uh, let's wrap. I want to thank you guys for joining us. If you made, I want to thank drunk, drunk for all the comments. We're gonna thank. Um, oh, to answer Drunk's question, did the dude who hit me admit he messed up, or he just keep riding? Um, a number of people on the ride stopped to check on me. As far as I can remember, the dude who actually wiped me out. I don't, he, he, I'll, all I can hope is that somebody on that ride called him out on his bullshit, but he didn't apologize to me. He didn't say shit. Yeah. Fuck man. All so right, I'm we, pissed about that too. We get a wrap. Uh, we're two hours into this. We want to thank you guys for, if you, if you listen this far, thank you. If you listen this far also, you have to interact just like we got these YouTube comments coming in. You gotta interact. You gotta send us messages. You gotta call in the next episode. Let us. We'll know respond to your comments. About. Ask drunk. Yeah, no. Obviously, we love. We love. You know, I I miss the TikTok and the Instagram comments tonight, but we're here for the comments. So, want well, to thank you guys for joining us. Want to thank you guys who subscribe. We'll see you guys next time. Uh, adios. Cheers. All right, that concludes this episode. Thank you for joining. I enjoyed having you here. So uh, I'll see you next time. I like PBR, I just got priced out of it.